and we are continuing, as Mike said, actually wrapping up our series in the book of Titus uh, called Gospel-Centered Leadership. So Mike had, in the first week, looked at the first chapter, half of chapter one, which was really talking about eldership and qualifications of men that would be in leadership roles within the church, and then we looked at the second half of that chapter, which outlined a lot of why we need people in those roles of leadership, as there had been dissension and uh, a lot of division through different leaders coming into the church there, and uh, they needed to be corrected and, and brought in line with sound doctrine, and so uh, this was the requirement and the need for these people to be in leadership. Then last week, Mike again took us through chapter 2, which helped us to focus on all of us now, taking a look at how we each as believers have a role within the church uh, to help and to mentor people, to be discipling people, to be apprenticing uh, those around us. And there was roles for older men and older women and younger men and younger women within that, that within the church, we each have a place and a role to serve one another. Now, chapter 3 turns our eyes a little bit more outward as we look at this community that we live in and what our roles are out in the world that we find ourselves. Let's pray uh, before we jump into today's text. God, we just come to you and we just open up our hearts and our minds. God, help us to lay out our lives before you, to be able to look at this thought of, of going out into Florence and what that might look like for each of us. God, just open our eyes to your word and to the leading of your spirit. God, and uh, just guide my words that they would be yours this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, as we take a look at this, it's maybe helpful to take a look back at Crete and the town uh, that the, that Titus was doing ministry in. We had talked about how it was an island and a port city, so there was a lot of people coming and going. It was a transient town, which we can somewhat understand here in Florence, as people are coming through just for a time, not necessarily considering that home. Uh, and yet, those that lived there were possibly a rough bunch. There were many mercenaries who called Crete home and they were hired out as being so uh, close to so many uh, shipping lanes and being able to go out to different battles that that was a, a hub of where they resided and they would go out and be paid for their services and whatever uh, uh, job was best paying. And so this was a part of the Cretan culture as well. My son was there, uh, well he went two-ish Crete. He uh, was there over the summer in Mediterranean, and he, I, I was asking him, so tell me about a memory you have on Crete. And he was like, okay, I remember going to the edge of the boat and about to get on the ship to go experience a day, but I was so sick, I decided to go take a 10-hour nap. So... He doesn't have many, many memories of Crete other than looking at it. Um, but this place was kind of like that. People are coming and going. And, and yet Crete was also a place that there was a lot of money going through there. And, and there was a guy, Plebeus, who was a historian and Greek statesman. He said this. He said, money is so highly valued among them that its possession is not only thought to be necessary, but in the highest degree creditable. Cretans, by their uh, ingrained variants, are engaged in countless public and private seditions, murder, and civil wars. Now, with few exceptions, you could find no habits prevailing in private life more steeped in treachery than those in Crete, and no public policy more inequitable. 
And he's saying that money was at the core of who they were and what they were about. And they weren't afraid to kill in order to possess it. And there was nothing even about their law and the way that they just resided that was profitable for many to look at. And so this is contemporaries talking about this. Paul, back in chapter 1, says to be known as a Cretan was to be known as a liar. And this is the world that Titus is doing ministry in. And yet there was a pocket also uh, of believers in this place that had not just been established. It had actually been there for quite some time. You see, as you go into Acts chapter 2, you find out that at Pentecost, there was actually believers, actually there was Jewish Cretans there at the time of Pentecost. And so Jesus ha- had died And he had rose again and he told his disciples, go and I want you to go and I want you to hole up in a room until the presence of the Holy Spirit can come upon you. And they were there and they were waiting. And in Acts chapter 2 we read about the Spirit coming down on them and filling all believers. And they were speaking in tongues and they went out to teach the people. And many who were there for a festival gathered. And amongst those were Jewish believers from Crete. And so it says also in Acts chapter 2 that 3,000 were added to their number that single day. So it stands to reason that some of these Jewish believers who would now come to believe in Jesus as the Messiah would go home. And they would start sharing with others and they would, they would start gathering with people that believed that Jesus was in fact the Messiah, the one that they had been waiting for. So within Crete... In this place, you have this pocket of believers who is already there and established and and meeting together to look at the Old Testament scriptures and how it had been fulfilled in the life of Jesus even before Paul came to establish the church. And then Paul comes in and he puts some structure around them and, and helps them and leaves behind for them Titus to continue to arrange for them a way to become a healthy and growing church. And so we have in this this heathenistic society a pocket of, of Jewish believers who would then have started reaching out to Gentiles and bringing them into the fold, into the body with them. And this is who uh, Titus is, is speaking to. As Paul writes to Titus, Titus is doing ministry in this place. We pick it up in chapter 3, verse 1. It says this, Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient and to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling and to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. And so again, here, as as Paul is finishing up his letter, he's saying, now that we understand the leadership within the church, now that we understand these believers' role in inside of the church, help them to understand how to live out in their community. Allow them to be good Cretans. Good Cretans. Let's change that term from meaning liar to meaning something else. And so he starts with, with this thought of being submissive to rulers and authorities. Now, I think we all sometimes have trouble with this, so he's reminding them, as you're out there, most of of your fellow Cretans are not submissive to rulers and authorities. They do their own thing, but I want you, I want you to be different, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. Now, we know that this community was about selfish gain, about attaining money at any cost, and, and he's saying, don't live the way they do. In fact, speak no evil of anyone. Avoid quarreling and and be gentle. It sounds like this was a pretty rough community. And he's saying, look differently than your community by being gentle. 
And then he goes on to say, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Not only be gentle, not only avoid fighting and quarrels, but in fact, be courteous to one another. Just those kinds of simple acts, and you will look different in this community that you live. Can you imagine that thought of trying to change this title of Cretan to mean something other than liar, but to mean something positive? I have a number of of friends and people that I know that choose not to call themselves Christians. Because the word Christian in our society has come to be known as something different. And and, and known to be known as as hypocritical. or, Or thought to be somebody that's judgmental. And so they've chosen other titles like Christ follower or lover of God. And, and I kind of understand that, that we have as, as a title Christian, a different kind of definition than what the Bible outlines for us. And he's saying, go out into your world and change the title, live differently than others who have been judgmental before you, who have been intolerant before you live differently so that you and your personality can give a different definition to this name Christian or this name Cretan. And he continues in verse 3. He says this, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Remember where you come from. We were the same as them, he's saying. Now, this is Paul writing, so he isn't a Cretan, so he is talking not just about people from Crete, but about all new believers. We all used to live there. We all used to be involved in quarreling and in fighting and in hating one another's and passions and pleasures of our flesh. We were all there. Don't forget your roots. We were all the same. So how can you act like you're high and mighty, that you're better than the believers around you? That used to be all of our story. Remember that. And then he actually writes a poem in the middle of this for for context. He's saying, in in light of what I'm about to say, this is what I want you to think about. I'm going to read it from the message. I just like the way it reads a little bit better. It wasn't so long ago that we ourselves were stupid and stubborn. Dupes of sin, ordered every which way by our glands, going around with a chip on our shoulder, hated and hating back. But when God, our kind and loving Savior God, stepped in, he saved us from all that. It was all his doing. We had nothing to do with it. He gave us good bath, and we came out of it new people, washed inside and out by the Holy Spirit. Our Savior Jesus poured out new life so generously. God's gift has restored our relationship with him and has given us back our lives. And there is more life to come, an eternal life. You can count on this. So he takes him back and says, I want you to remember who you are. But more importantly, I want you to remember what's been done for you. We lived in this same life as those around you, but God came in. God came in because he loved you so much, and he paid the ultimate sacrifice. We didn't have to do anything. We had nothing to do with it, but Jesus loved you enough to fill you, to breathe new life into you, to wash away all those old behaviors and create in you a new being. I want you to remember that, and he says, and in light of this, This, I want you to go out and live this new life. 
Not on your own merit, not on your own strength, not under your own will, but because of what God has already done for you, you can go and do for others. Verse 8, he continues, The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Because of this, in light of what has been done for you, I want you to go and I want you to be devoted to good works. No longer devoted to your old passions and pleasures. No longer devoted to the things that are profitable, that look profitable within your community, about going after money, about going after power, but on good works. Because these are profitable, not just for yourself, but for all those around you. Verse 9, in contrast, he says, But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. So he talks about these number of things. Foolish stuff. It's just foolish. It's meaningless. Why do you focus on some of these things? He goes on to for different controversies. There were things in the community that were coming up that, that Christians were getting involved in that weren't profitable for people. Why are you involved in these controversies? They were also involved in, in ancient Jewish myths. We remember this from chapter 1. That, that they were bringing up the law from the past and, and these thoughts of genealogies. And they would study their genealogies to prove how great they were. And to be able to count their genealogy back and say, see, I'm related to Abraham. See, I'm related to this person and this person. Look at how amazing I am because of my lineage. And he's saying, don't do that. It doesn't matter. None of that matters anymore. It doesn't matter who you come from because Christ has accepted all of us. It doesn't matter what your last name is in this community. It doesn't matter how uh, how your ancestors achieved some great battle or, or that they have uh, uh, their line as a prophet or a priest. None of that matters in light of what God has done for you. So don't focus on those things because they're unprofitable and worthless. Then he continues. Actually, this is something that he had dealt with in a lot of different places. Paul goes and he talks to another one of what Paul would call his sons. Uh, Titus and Timothy were both his spiritual sons who he had spent a lot of time with, working with. And, and we see some similar messages to him. First Timothy chapter 1, verse 4 says, Don't devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. So as you're talking about things that have nothing to do with moving the church forward, have nothing to do with making an impact in your community. Again, in chapter 6 of 1 Timothy, he says, He is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, and evil suspicions. This kind of talk, these things that people had focused on, not only here in Crete but in other places, they were just causing heartache and division within the church, again in Second Timothy, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they only breed quarrels. 
That's exactly the world that Paul was writing in here to avoid, and he was doing so to many churches. As you read some of the epistles, you see that people were fighting, and it was a whole lot of infighting. It was a lot of Christians arguing with other Christians about stuff that just doesn't matter. And we're not a whole lot different now. There's a reason why some people don't want to be labeled as Christian. Because others experience it's like, you just fight amongst yourselves. I mean, you guys can't even get along. Why would I want to come and be a part of it with you? And he's saying that can't be what we're known for any longer. Let's get over our stuff. It's meaningless. Let's put it aside and just focus on the fact that we're all forgiven. Here, here's a great equalizer. We're all messed up. Let's just be messed up together. That's what a Sunday morning gathering is, is a group of messed up people who have been loved by a Savior, who have nothing to offer in and of ourselves, and yet God chooses to use us in the place that he's put us. How about we start with that place? And, and that's what Paul, back in the first century, over and over for church after church after church is writing, reminding them, just put all that useless stuff behind you and focus on the things that matter, God's work in your life. And then he says this for those that would raise dissension in verse 10. He says this, As for the person who stirs up division, after warning him once, And then twice have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful and he is self-condemned. I'll give you a minute. I mean, that seems harsh, right? But it's interesting because if you go back to chapter 1 in the exact same verses, verse 10 and 11, he says this, For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. So he's saying this thing is breaking up families. This is ripping our church apart. When you read just that verse in chapter uh, 3 that says, warn them once or twice and then have nothing to do with them, it seems harsh until you understand that he's saying the church is being torn apart. You see, we have a responsibility, and what we have a responsibility to is what was in the verse just before this, chapter 1, verse 9. We must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that, uh, he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. And so there's people that are ripping the church apart, that are injuring the church, and he's saying it has to, it must be dealt with. Now, Paul had written about this in another place in Second Thessalonians, and this is what he says. He says, as for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. Similar language, isn't it? If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. He's not saying that we completely ostracize this person, that we treat him as an enemy. He's still a brother, but you have to separate yourself. You can't allow them into the church to continue to divide and continue to to raise arguments and divisions. And I maybe want you to think about it like this. Guys, how would you act towards somebody that was disrespecting your wife? 
Would you warn them? Yes, that's good of you. We're good Americans that we can't just go straight into fights in the year 2018, right? You warn them once, right? You warn them twice, but a third time, I tell you what, I better just walk away. Because if I don't walk away, then we're going to have a different kind of issue, probably, right? Guys, are you going to put up with that with your wives? Wives, how do you want to be protected? Do you want your husband to just stand by and let you be ridiculed time and time again? Maybe after a warning or two, but don't you want him to remove you from that situation? To not put up with that? You see, Paul is writing on Jesus' behalf about his bride, the church. And so he's saying, no, that's not okay. You're not going to treat my bride this way over and over. And so you have to warn them. That goes back to verse 9 in chapter 1 again. Warn them so that they can be brought into correct doctrine. Maybe they'll go, oh, I didn't understand. I didn't realize that what I was saying was coming across that way. I didn't realize that I had hurt you. Warn them again, it says, because maybe they're in the habit of it. And they had been repentant, but they fell back into their old ways. And and now they're, oh, man, I'm so sorry. You're right. Help me with that. I really need help to not cause quarrels and divisions in the church. I shouldn't be talking about people behind their backs. I shouldn't be doing this. Maybe they'll come in line. But if they continue, if they're unrepentant, it says if they continue in the act of this sinful behavior, that's what the end of this in verse 11 says. It says, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, they're still in the act of it. They're not on the other side of it. They haven't repented and turned away from it. They're still in the act of it. Then you just separate yourself from them. You can't be around that. You can't allow the bride of Christ to be wrung through in that way. And so these are harsh decisive words here at the end. But Paul has been setting this up. Titus is saying uh, to Titus, you're setting up the church. You put men who are qualified in a place to help lead and help bring people back to correct doctrine, help encourage the believers. You have your other fellow uh, believers, older men and older women, discipling younger men and younger women. You have your younger men and women aspiring to growth and to, to submission in understanding what the gospel means. But if they keep sneaking in, then you have to. You have to take care of it. You have to protect the bride. And this is how we live in this world, he's saying, that you go out into your world wherever you at and you live differently. That you change this notion of what people think is uh, of as a Cretan and you live in such a way that people can be encouraged and brought into the church because it's now healthy. Because it's not filled with perfect people, but it's filled with broken people who understand their brokenness in light of the cross. In light of what's done for you, this is how I want you to live. So I think about this. I think about this world in Crete. And now I think about us in 2018 and where we live here in Florence. What is our community? And what does ours look like? Where are the spaces that we're at? I know in the last year I found myself in different spaces uh, than I would have guessed necessarily. My daughter started cheerleading. And cheerleading is like, it's a whole subculture. Do you guys know this? Who's had cheerleaders or been one? Or you're a cheerleader, Raphael? That's awesome. Oh, hey, it works. No, I mean, this this whole, like, this whole culture of competitive cheerleading that Trudy and I had to learn and understand and, uh, like, the bow, like, don't mess with a cheerleader's bow. That is serious business. 
like fear the bow. Okay, and, and so for Trudy and I to understand this culture and then to be able to be intentional about relating to people in that space, another one for me uh, was at art shows as my son was involved with art and going to, to different art shows and receptions. And this is a different world for me. I don't, I've not been involved in that. And so trying to understand how I fit in this space and how I can be an encouragement to them and connect with different people. And I wonder where you're at, what spaces you're at. I'd like to write some of these down. Um, if I had a post-it note, I got post-it note. Hold on. I can put that down. What's post-it note? You seen these things? I didn't expect to have a microphone in my hand today, so we'll try this. So what worlds are you in? Like, I know already that you uh, go to work somewhere, probably, okay? You live somewhere, you have a home, and uh, you or you go to school. So those are, I don't necessarily want to talk about your workplace. I don't necessarily want to talk about home uh, or school. But what spaces in Florence, what activities around other people do you find yourselves in? This is life in Florence. Restaurants? Okay. Restaurants, thank you. So let me, disclaimer. I have no idea how to spell restaurant. I hate this word. But we're no longer going to be concerned with spelling. Okay? Somebody help me out. R-E-S-T-A-U-R. Cool. Thank you. Yeah, good job. We collectively know how to spell restaurant. Where else do you find yourself? Okay, grocery store, yeah. Where else? Grocery. Theater. Okay, don't be too fast. Uh, bowling. Nor are we concerned with handwriting, just for the record. Let's go to orange, because it makes me happy. Anybody else? What? Somebody help me. Kids. Kids? Kids activities, yes. Absolutely. Okay, let's hear some of those specific art galleries. Okay, can't see orange. We're bailing on orange. We'll go back to green. Let's try green. No, you can't see that orange. Art galleries. What else? Library. Elks. Good. Any other short ones that I could fit on this side? All right, hold on. Told you it was a post-it note. Okay, uh, Habitat for Humanity. School, humane. Society. Quilting. 
I get worse when it gets lower. FEC. Okay. Okay, neighborhoods, yes. Where else? Beach? Okay, beach, yeah, you could be, there's people at the beach. Dog park. Church, yep. The business center? Fitness center, yes, yes, yes. I was like, business center? I don't know where that is. Uh, let's go, yeah. Let's go even hike, bike. Oh, that looks bad. Thank you. Thank. We're just going to write this over here. Coffee shop. Somebody else said something I... Fishing. Yeah, okay, fishing out on boats or there along uh, roadie. Anything else? Say again? I'm sorry, say again? Bingo. Oh, thank you. Somebody had to sing it for me. All right, so as we look at this, this is life in Florence. Okay? This is where we find ourselves. Now, I am not in all of these spaces, and yet you are. Uh, you know what? I want to go with one more. Where else do you... Are, do we have some more places that you volunteer your time? Oh, it's going to make for a bad recording. Where do you volunteer? Food share. Thank you, hospital... Military museum, absolutely. Military museum, food. Backpacks for kids. Every child. Oh my gosh. Western Lane Community Foundation. Okay. Well, that was a lot of letters in quick succession. Um, this is, again, life in Florence, where we find ourselves. As we look at Timothy and what Paul had to say to them is this, that you need a healthy church. You need a healthy church with healthy leaders that can, that can encourage you and be there for one another and, and walk you along. And if there are things that come up that they can bring correction so that the body can be brought together. So that inside of that church, you can be there for one another, not just an isolated Christian, a lone ranger Christian out on your own, but you can be in relationship with one another, learning from somebody, but also teaching somebody, being a disciple and being discipled. But also, you got to live in a place. You're in spaces. Let me tell you, I'm not at the military museum a lot. I'm not at Western Lane County of uh, whatever the WLCF 
foundation. I had it before I started talking. Uh, I'm not at the dog park. I'm not in some of these spaces, but you are. You see, and in those places, it says focus on the good things. Focus on encouraging others. Focus on changing the name, possibly, of what has been marred as Christian into something else. You see, you've been put in spaces that only you can reach people. I can't. Mike can't. Our elders can't. We're not in those spaces with you. We're not in your classroom. We're not in your workplace, your home. Those are the the easy places that we automatically think of. But are you intentional in these spaces? The Humane Society is one of my favorite things to talk about. You know, you started at the Humane Society because you love petting cats. And more power to you because somebody has to. But from now on, I want you to go to the Humane Society in order to love people while you pet cats. That you can connect in an affinity for animals and caring for them, which I think is great. But that you're there for the other volunteers, for the employees that are underappreciated. That you can be an encouragement to them. That you can ask them what you can be praying for. That you can ask questions about their family and know about their lives. The Humane Society is a perfect example. You're there for one reason initially, but if you change that to be intentional about being there for people, it changes everything. Also, within quilting, I know quilting is a a society and a culture of its own here in Florence. You have the ability over the course of hours and hours to hear stories and to be there to understand what's going on with kids and grandkids and be praying for them. And a month later and six months later say, hey, I've been praying for your granddaughter. How's she doing? And to be there for each other in that. At the theater, whether it's at the movie theater or at live theater, connecting with people in those spaces, you see, this is life in Florence. And we can infiltrate it, and we can make a difference in it, not because, not because we're, we're setting out to, to fix it, but because we live in it, we care about it. That's what Paul is saying to Titus. You guys live in this place. It's a rough place. It's hard to be there sometimes, but I want you to, to, to just care. I want you to intentionally love on the people that you find yourself connected with. And then Paul closes with these words. He says, when I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to send Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and, and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you and greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. And he's saying just this. I'm sending backup. I'm sending fresh voices and fresh hearts. I know it can get discouraging. I'm sending people to you. When they get there, take a chance to come and see me. You know, to be encouraged about the work that I'm doing here. But there's others that are there with you that you're going to send out on mission also. Make sure they have everything that they need. Don't focus on the unprofitable, but focus that everybody is doing good. And I just want to encourage us this week to think about the spaces that you're in. You know, and in light of what God has done for you, choose to lead in some of those spaces in a way that can draw people back to the one that loves us. Let's pray. God, you are so good. God, we come to you uh, for help in this. God, it's not an easy task.
God, it can get frustrating as we deal with sometimes the same people that uh, that just get under our skin sometimes or just are ungracious, but allow us to see something bigger. God, allow us to, to move uh, with your power in our lives, with your grace in our hearts. Uh, and God, we thank you that you want to make a difference in this place through us. In Jesus' name, amen. Come to this time of communion.